Hello, I'm James Hurst. Welcome to an extra edition of BFBS SITREP. Just over a year ago, a new long-term vision for the UK's armed forces was set out in the Integrated Review. Within months, Afghanistan's government had collapsed and the Taliban swept back to power. Then, war broke out in Europe as Russia invaded Ukraine. MPs say those events mean the latest master plan for UK armed forces is already out of date. The Commons Defence Committee warns in a new report that the forces face overstretch, are too small and are vulnerable because of capability gaps. The Ministry of Defence says it will continue to adapt strategy and response to meet emerging threats, but the MPs want the plan updated now. I've been talking to the committee's chairman, Tobias Elwood. When this uh, integrated review was written, you know, over a year ago, uh, the world looked very different. And what we're now seeing are strains on our armed forces, uh, particularly our three conventional forces, uh, which means that they are becoming overwhelmed. So we cut our troop numbers by 10,000, and yet here we are committing two battle groups to Estonia, along with all the other commitments we have around the world. Uh, we reduced our F-35 fleet from 138 to just 48. So that's probably enough to put on our two aircraft carriers, but not enough if we wanted to bolster our eastern flank of uh, NATO. And uh, uh, we are simply uh, running out of ammunition as well. We've gifted so much equipment to the Ukrainians. Um, we now recognize that uh, we will there'll be a shortfall were we to take on Russia ourselves. If the amount of ammunition that Ukraine is expending, if we were into war, we'd run out in two weeks. So it's a very, very dangerous scenario for us to be facing. And the penny must drop that life isn't going to get any better anytime soon. Authoritarianism is on the rise. Russian aggression won't stay in Ukraine itself. You've got the head of the British army actually saying that there's a 1937 feel to the world today. So I do hope this report will land and whoever will be the next prime minister will recognize the need to protect our economy by investing in security. You mentioned there the idea of the forces being overwhelmed. The report uses the word overstretch. In, in terms of the men and women of the armed forces, what's your worry about what might be demanded of them? Well, it's always the service personnel that love you know, going on the operations and so forth and doing the training. But there's also demands on the family. And if you send uh, personnel abroad and they're constantly uh, going from one exercise or one operation to another, then that does place huge pressure on the family unit itself to the point where eventually uh, something has to give. And usually it's the uh, the person in uniform then having to quit the armed forces themselves. We've seen this time and time again. So you need to have uh, the resilience in place, the size of the armed force to be able to make sure you can meet your commitments and have the spare capacity uh, as the threat picture begins to, to erode. And we don't have that at the moment. We have gone the wrong way. We've actually reduced the size of our all three armed forces. They are extremely capable, extremely professional, just not enough of them. Uh, you are recommending a new chapter to update the integrated review in light of what's happened since. Presumably, you don't just want words on a, on a page outlining how things have changed. You want actual changes. What, what are they? Yes. I mean, it's very interesting hearing the Defence Secretary perhaps liberated because there is a, uh, 
uh, a leadership contest on. So therefore, he's uh, freer to speak his own mind. I think finally being able to say public what perhaps he's thought for a little while um, is that the defence budget is too small. It's a peacetime budget. During the Cold War, it was at 4%. And now it's just over 2.2%. And it does need to uh, increase. We do need to make sure that we have the size of infantry that's going to meet the requirements and the taskings that we're going to place on them. We need a greater uh, force presence in the maritime environment as well, not just high uh, caliber ships such as Type 26s and Type uh, uh, 40, uh, 45s, um, but also more rudimentary constabulary work so we can patrol the Black Sea or the South China Sea or indeed the Atlantic and so forth uh, with a, a, a force presence that is able to offer the tripwire uh, should something uh, more serious happen, which then brings in the bigger forces to be able to to stand and defend, uh, you know, uh, to, to hold the line. These decisions are not just about money. And to quote former Conservative Prime Minister, there is no magic money tree. Uh, it's also about the priorities that you take. And I'm, I'm intrigued by a phrase in your report describing the U UK defence as arrogant and unwilling to learn lessons. So, you know, what lessons can be learned to make things better here? It, it has been frustrating to hear again and again and again that there's nothing to see here that despite the scale of change in the threat picture across Europe and indeed beyond, in recognizing how our world is changing, that there was no requirement to at all, to visit the integrated review at all. And that that is arrogant, I'm afraid, because we all know um, that we have entered a decade of instability. And there is at the moment a vacuum of leadership uh, in Europe, which Putin is actually exploiting. It's normally Britain that steps into that vac vacuum, by the way. That's historically what we've done. You're not going to see France or Germany doing that. You're not probably going to see the United States doing that as well. There are so many domestic distractions for Biden to then focus on, and his situation will get weaker, no doubt, because of the midterm elections. So that's not only an opportunity, but I would say almost a duty for Britain to then step up. But we can only do that if we then have the necessary hard power, the defence posture to lead from the front. There is an argument that actually the threat hasn't changed. All that has changed is we've seen Vladimir Putin doing the kind of thing that the integrated review warned about. I wouldn't agree with that at all. Um, we hesitated to support Ukraine prior to the invasion itself. I called for a division to move into Ukraine to prevent uh, the, the invasion. How different life would have been Look at the, the fact that grain can't leave Odessa. That's directly impacting on our economy here. That is one of the major factors when it comes to inflation. Oil and gas is now being affected by Russia across Europe and indeed here in the UK. Energy bills here all contribute, all point to the fact of instability in Eastern Europe. And yet no we one, don't have... No one, would deny, have no one would deny that the Ukraine crisis is affecting us, but... Many people look at it and go, the direct military threat to us and therefore you know, the, the kind of armed forces we need hasn't changed. Well, that's to simplify what the role of our hard power can do in rectifying the challenges to our security, to security in Eastern Europe. If you don't stand up to bullies, they will take full advantage, not just on the military uh, arena, but also the economic as well. So that's why it's important that we're able to then bolster our support 
for Ukraine. No one was expecting us to be able to empty the cupboards of our ammunition and our equipment to support Ukraine in the way that we've done in the past. And that will only increase. Nobody was anticipating us having to send battle groups to Estonia. And that's just today. Where I think it's going to be next year or the year after. And if you need more equipment, you need to start designing it and making it today. We can't leave it until it's too late again. I stress the fact that there is in 1937 to the world right now, absence of international leadership, nations rearming, authoritarianism on the rise, weak international institutions unable to hold errant nations such as Russia to account. And there's a vacuum there for leadership to then to be filled. And again, it should be Britain that steps up to the plate. We can only do that if we increase our defence budget and increase our defence posture for the Army, the Air Force and the Navy. I mean, you point to that warning of a, a 1937 moment. Equally, the head of the Navy this week warned China in the long term is a, is a bigger military threat than Russia. Isn't there a danger here of pulling the pendulum back too far in a knee-jerk response to Ukraine, and that will then leave us more vulnerable to a more significant threat down the line. So you're absolutely right. You're sort of making my point is that the world is getting more dangerous. We have two spheres of uh, concern, not just in Eastern Europe, but in the South China Sea and around China as well. They are actually related because it's my view that Russia and China have recognized after Afghanistan just how weak the West has become. And they've chosen this moment in the time frame to step up, to challenge the international rules-based order in a way that we've not seen before. It won't change China's behavior by sending our aircraft carrier through the South China Sea every couple of years. You need to be sending ships through every month or so. So that means more rudimentary constabulary-type ships that can patrol. Likewise, around the Atlantic, in the, uh, the Arctic, the Baltics, and so forth, as well as the Mediterranean and the other areas that we're uh, regularly involved with. You can only do that if you double the size of our Navy. That doesn't mean more Type uh, 26s and Type 45s, but simpler vessels like the Type 31, the more modularity. But we're only you know, buying a handful of these, designing a handful of these. So we need some major changes. It's, but it is a requirement that the penny must drop. We must have that Sputnik moment that the world is moving to a very, very darker chapter. And we need to wake up and lead. You are just back from visiting Ukraine and its neighbour, Moldova. What did you learn from being in those countries rather than just hearing it from the UK? So, I mean, thank you for answering, asking that question. Firstly, Moldova, they are a neutral country, but they are requesting from Britain the same support we gave to Ukraine back in 2014, which you'll recall was training, uh, was bolstering their armed forces, was providing equipment and so forth, which was actually paramount in helping uh, the Ukrainians hold uh, Russia back uh, when they did, finally did the invasion itself. That is what Moldova is asking for today, because they now realize that they are could be next, because they're not in the NATO uh, club. So that's something I hope that we will then embrace. But on Odessa, you know, historians listening will be aware that this was one of the original four Proud, proud cities that were part of the Russian Empire, along with uh, Moscow, St. Petersburg, and uh, and Warsaw. Russia wants this back, and uh, if they take Odessa, of course, they then isolate 
uh, ring fence Ukraine, uh, make it landlocked, so it'll ruin uh, Ukraine's economy, which is what Russia wants. More critically, it will mean that grain can't get out to the wider world. We've come to understand that uh, it's the breadbasket of Europe and beyond. 40% of African grain comes from uh, comes from Odessa. So that's why I call for a UN uh, General Assembly resolution to provide the legal top cover for the the, uh, the port to be moved into a humanitarian safe haven and then a coalition of the winning, the UN coalition, to then be able to protect uh, the, the ships, the civilian ships being able to then distribute that critical grain across the world. That would be my answer to making sure that uh, uh, we also affect the cost of living crisis here as well, because that grain can get out, the price of food will then drop here in the UK too. What was Odessa like as a city while you were there? Um, I mean, very, very nervous indeed. I mean, literally 30, 40 miles away is the front line, a place called Mikolaev. I visited a school about five miles away that had been bombed indiscriminately. Every single uh, window of the school had been been smashed. The school, now, you know, the teachers were, were all in tears. Their lives absolutely ruined because of this single uh, attack. Uh, Odessa is now growing with refugees that are coming from the front line, spreading across you know, from uh, from the east, and a recognition that if Russia consolidates what's going on in the Donbass, that they will turn their attention west and try and link up uh, their uh, successes along the uh, the the, uh, the Black Sea coastline uh, with Transnistria, which borders Moldova as well. So this is all very much a reality, and that's why we need to lean in and help Ukrainians even further. What sense did you get from the officials you spoke to there and indeed ordinary Ukrainians about what they want the UK to be doing? We hear they're you know very grateful for what we've done so far. Do they feel it's enough or do they feel we've got a game-changing something that we can put into it? You know, I've been critical of the Prime Minister for you know problems closer to home and how number 10 you know conducted his activities. But praise to Boris Johnson and, and his support early on uh, with with Ben Wallace too uh, in uh, providing the necessary assistance to Ukraine, and that's greatly appreciated by all Ukrainians. Um, uh, there's a frustration that NATO is not there, a frustration that other NATO, uh, NATO countries are not doing as much as Britain is doing uh, itself, and it is that international collaboration and support that they are begging for because they know Britain. You know, can can only do so much uh, itself. But this is far from over. All this talk about you know Russia depleting its own stocks or calling it a day, uh, quite the opposite. If you think how uh, they went into uh, Georgia and took twenty percent of that country back in two thousand and eight, then they took the Crimea, then they took a bit of the Donbass. Now they're back taking another one. You know, this won't be over. R- Russia and indeed China, they think long term. And we're unable to do that. We think in election cycles, almost in news cycles as well, we need to think bigger picture and recognize that as long as Putin is there in the Kremlin, that the pressure on in Eastern Europe will continue. How long do you think this war will last? I think unless we are willing to upgrade uh, and uh, push Russia out of the Donbass region, then it's going to go on for many, many years itself. We will become fatigued by it in the West, 
and there's uh, every worry, a uh, real worry, that the port of Odessa will fall uh, as well, and that will cause massive problems uh, across Asia and indeed Africa. Countries like Egypt, where governance will be very, very difficult when you have famine and starvation on almost a biblical scale. These are the big issues, and I'm afraid the international community is not recognizing. And it goes back to that very point, the, very, the start of this interview, as to why having strong defense is so important, given the very fast-changing world we're about to experience. Tobias Elwood, thank you. Thank you. This is Sidrath.